This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the State House of Representatives sends the governor a bill requiring parental consent for minors who seek an abortion. The Appropriations Committee in the State Senate approves a bill to raise the age for vaping and ban almost all the flavored vaping products. Officials in the state college system unveil a new program to help veterans and members of the military navigate the higher ed system, get a degree, and transition to civilian life. On the Sunrise interview today, we talk with Senator Tom Lee, who has spent more than 20 years in the legislature. A lot has changed over the years, and Lee says many of those changes have diminished the system. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and an all-female version of Florida Man. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, February 21st. To absolutely no one's surprise, the Florida House of Representatives has approved the bill requiring minor girls to get parental consent if they want an abortion. Representative Aaron Grawl sponsored the House version of the bill. I know that the family structure is critical to the strength of our society and the role of a parent to provide that support and guidance to their minor child is fundamental to the family. We have taken the focus off of family for far too long to the detriment of our society. And in here, over the last two days and last year, we hear the horror stories, the horror stories of the bad parent, the human trafficking, the intolerant parent, the abusive parent, the parent who will kill their child. And I refuse to accept that we should diminish the rights of all parents in the raising of their children because of the acts of a few. It is indisputable that abortion ends a life. And the decision to end a life is permanent, life-altering, not only for the baby, but for the girl, the father, and the family. Parents have the ability to see the realistic path forward and provide wisdom, wisdom that youth cannot always understand. The state furthers its compelling interest of protecting the immature child, the integrity of the family, and the fundamental right for parents to raise their children, and this bill does it in the least intrusive way. I would submit that we have lost our way, and by including parents in this decision, we empower the family. Representative Cindy Polo of Miami opposed the parental consent bill because she says the rights of the parents should not outweigh the rights of the pregnant girl. Being a parent is a blessing. It is the greatest of my life. But to imply or insinuate that as a parent, my rights are dictated in the Constitution or that my rights outweigh my son's needs and choices is just arrogance. How dare I believe that my ego comes before my child's choices? He will make mistakes. He will not do everything I tell him to. He, him, his, boy, young man, words that have barely been spoken the last two days in this chamber. No mention of the man's role in this pregnancy because apparently us women do it all. She is responsible all by herself. She shall have to carry a baby or the weight of a termination. It is her that must face a judge. It is her, her, that we are debating. A room full of 84 men that shortly will press a button that regulates all responsibility to a young woman, either in favor or against, but yet still say that she doesn't know what's best 
for her, her body, and her future. We are telling women, girls, young people that judges know better, legislators know better, or that we as parents know better. They debated for hours over rights, responsibility, legality, life, and death. The most cringeworthy moments came when Representative Kim Daniels of Jacksonville decided to share her own abortion story. I can give you a real life situation because I'm probably, I haven't checked, the only person in here that had an abortion at 15 without my mother's consent. And I don't want to go into the details, but I was a real a slick one. So I, I got the paper signed without my mom, got the abortion, while, while I didn't have a very good Planned Parenthood experience. As I was having the abortion, as the women were over me at a major hospital, telling me how I should have never opened my legs in the first time. It was the most horrible thing that I ever been through, the most painful thing. And I, I can see some folk that will laugh and, oh, she's going too far, but this is serious to me. Because having abortion at 15 without your mother is nothing to play with. I got up off that, that table thanking God that I made it through the procedure. I went to school a few day, days later, and guess what? They didn't get all of the baby. So when I went into the bathroom in my high school, parts of the baby's coming out of me. Somebody find me in the bathroom. My dean of girls come into the bathroom, and she said these words that forced me to support this legislation that I would never forget. Somebody go get her mama. The final vote was 75 to 43, and with that, the bill was headed for the governor, who has already promised to sign it. The Budget Committee in the Senate approves a bill to regulate vaping in the Sunshine State. It raises the legal age to 21 and bans almost all flavored nicotine products. Senator David Simmons says the ban on flavored vape products is designed to protect children. But Senator Jeff Brandis had some questions and some doubts. We are limiting the flavored nicotine, liquid nicotine products to two types. One of them being menthol, the other tobacco flavor. We are regulating this uh, product, the one that has, when unregulated, caused uh, significant damage. Uh, you know, uh, young people have been killed as a result of this. There needs to be regulation of this particular product. That's what this does, but it does not prohibit it. Do you know of any children that have been killed by smoking grape-flavored or any other flavored product that is not menthol or regular tobacco? I mean, do you specific that, that has been sold commercially? In Florida? Multiple individuals have died as a result of the use of uh, vaping mechanisms. The question that you ask is, do I know any? Uh, no, I don't know any children. I know that uh, the uh, statistics show that uh, as much as 25 to 30 percent of our young people, that is in high school and middle school, are already addicted to uh, 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 to vaping, to nicotine, and that uh, uh, that this has a tremendous impact upon not only their lives, the school districts, many are just uh, at uh, wit's end as to what to do as a result of this, because uh, nicotine to a young person's brain and the development of that young person is devastating. We don't even know what the health impacts are going to be. This will not stop high school vaping. You have the internet. We have eBay, you have Amazon, you have other forms of access to having products delivered. And that will, this will not stop that. 
The federal law, yes, prohibits certain types of, of flavored products, but it also allows certain types of flavored products. And this bill does not track what the federal law is. It greatly oversteps what that is. It will definitely lead to more black market use. And we know that all of the deaths that have been related to vaping have been black market vaping. Rich Lovett with the Florida Smoke-Free Association represents many of the vape shops in the state, and he says the Senate bill will do more harm than good. His group supports the House version of the vaping bill because it would not classify vape ingredients as tobacco products. The simple truth is that this bill, as written, will re likely result in more people smoking, not less people vaping. The bill itself should have a warning label on it. I don't like to say this, but I have to point out that we have been ridiculed, mocked, and misquoted on this bill. Millions of Floridians and their health decisions have been victims of ad hominem accusations falsely lumping us in with the lung injuries by ignoring the medical community's declarations that such injuries are from the black market vaping of THC products. And we've been falsely accused of wanting no regulation. In, in this case, we think that House Bill 7089 really gets it right, and it's all of the exact same regulations, but without the artificial tobacco definition. We want to be part of supporting the House Bill and help the thousand Florida small businesses uh, and millions of adults in Florida who use smoke-free vapor to quit smoking. And we want a path to a regulation that works. And this bill, especially as amended to eliminate all flavors, would eliminate all those businesses and would take away the rights of millions of Floridians. None of this stopped the Appropriations Committee from approving Simmons' bill. It's now ready for the Senate floor. The state college system unveils a new effort to help veterans and active-duty military members navigate the world of higher education. State Representative Mel Ponder says the Patriot's Path program will help them find the most accessible and affordable education options. The Patriot's Path program will provide veterans and active-duty members to have the most accessible and affordable education options. Each college will have services and programs that will reflect their own community's needs. With an estimated 1.5 million veterans residing in Florida and over 20,000 military currently enrolled in the Florida college system, Florida has the third largest veteran population in the nation, so you can see why this initiative is so vitally important to our state. Tallahassee Community College President Jim Murdoch says Florida colleges already offer an array of programs to help veterans and members of the military. And if the legislature approves Ponder's bill, he says they'll be able to do even more. We are a major driver for helping our veterans transition back into civilian life and, and earn degrees and credentials that get them jobs. That's what we are all about. Our institutions have always done a great job of being a seamless pathway to a college degree for our veteran community. And as a result, we're the primary access point for higher education in our state. We welcome them for their strength, their courage, their diversity of viewpoints. And they, as they blend into our student population, add much to our student population as well as learn much from the other students that they're there with. Patriot's Path was born from a desire to do more to ensure that everyone knows about the access, resources, support, and advocacy that we provide to our student veterans. A few examples of what we will be including in Patriot's Path are waiving out-of-state tuition fees to ensure that college stays affordable for our veterans and active duty service members. Granting credit for skills and knowledge gained during military service to accelerate workforce entry, which is a top priority in the legislature this year. We also are providing one-on-one -on -one advising to help veterans understand and utilize the education benefits available to them. President Murdoch says the Patriot's Path will help ensure that members of the military can have the greatest accessibility possible to earn a college degree as they transition into civilian life.
Next up on the Sunrise Interview, we sit down with Senator Tom Lee, a veteran of more than 20 years in the legislature who spent two years as president of the Senate. That was back in 2005 and 2006. This year, he's in charge of one of the governor's top priorities, a bill requiring employers to use the federal e-verify system to check the immigration status of all new hires. His bill is moving, but it's been watered down so much that Lee says the governor should veto it in its current form. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. If you live along the I-4 corridor, learn to use your business experience to impact public policy. Apply today to the Central Florida Political Leadership Institute at cflpli.org. The Orlando Economic Partnership offers this free nonpartisan program for business-minded leaders to explore whether elected or appointed office is right for them, discover political strategies to succeed and lead, and join a network of influencers. Apply by February 21st. Visit cflpli.org. That's cflpli.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is State Senator Tom Lee from the Tampa area. Brandon, I believe, is it? Just north of Brandon and Thanona Sassa these days. Thanona Sassa. I hate writing that in, in copy because no one knows where Thanona Sassa is. But welcome to the show. Thank you for putting the time aside for us. Today. Thank you, Rick. Always a pleasure to be with you. Now, your main thing this year is the E-Verify Bill. You've been leading the charge in the Senate, and some absolutely bizarre things have been happening on that. What is the status now of the E-Verify Bill? Well, the bill's awaiting a hearing in the Rules Committee. It's been through two committees of reference now. And, um, we're, I'm, you know, I went to the Senate president early on and asked him to give me an opportunity to take this bill through the process and produce something that's reflective of the body politic of the Senate institution. And um, we've, we've made it through two committees. Uh, Senator Simmons at the Judiciary Committee got heavily involved in the bill. And so, so at this point, I'm um, awaiting uh, the bill to be agended in the Rules Committee, and it'll be again my, you know, uh, my job to figure out how to get this bill through that committee and get it available for the floor. And I suspect what's going to happen because this is a major priority of the, of the governor is that there at some point is going to be some negotiations at a high level between the governor and the Senate President and the Speaker about how to land this plane. And my thought was, hey, if we get to a place where the bill is too watered down for the tolerances of the governor, then, you know, we just have to pull the plug and, and, and do something next year. But but let's not shut the process down in the early weeks. Let's let it work. And it has been watered down substantially. Oh, no question about that. How, how, how exactly was that other provision? Did it end up in there? Well, we started out with an agricultural exemption and uh, then the agricultural community wanted back in the bill. And so in exchange for an agricultural exemption, we essentially created an exemption for every industry. Uh, so now <laughs> we have the a, way it works here. Yeah. Now we now we have an, uh, the honor system all over again uh, through the traditional I-9 uh, form that gets filed. And uh, there's also um, there was also a threshold set at 150 employees. And as I showed Senator Simmons and others working with the governor's office, you can exempt employers with 10 employees or more and capture 87% of the state's employees and exempt almost 80% or over 80% of the state's employers. So you can capture a bulk and solve a bulk of this problem and not impose too much on the micro businesses um, at a number much, much lower than 150. We're now at 20. Now, during your close on the bill in the last committee, I was particularly impressed by the way you addressed the whole fundamental issue of the fairness of Florida relying on undocumented labor. 
Uh, yeah, you this, must have gotten some blowback on that one. Well, you know, not so much. I mean, this issue has been recast um, as an immigration issue. Uh, it is unlawful under federal law to hire an employee in this country that's not authorized to work in the United States of America. The federal government has created a system that allows us to take the information you're required to obtain it from an employee and run it through a verification system called E-Verify. So that it has a high degree of accuracy so that we can enforce the federal law and employers are holding up the rule of law in this country. Uh, we've turned a blind eye because cheap foreign labor that's exploited in this state by business uh, has made a lot of people a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I just think it's wrong to focus this focus in on the inconvenience to business and leave out this important piece of the manner in which these illegal and, and foreign undocumented uh individuals are treated by our business community in our state, how exploited they are, and how they're uh, profited upon by um, predatory businesses seeking to circumvent the law. And yet, wouldn't Florida business almost be crippled if we lost all of that undocumented labor? Well, I'm not sure that's true. Um, I do have a particular empathy for the agricultural industry because they, they compete outside the borders of our state internationally with foreign labor laws, foreign environmental laws, and they also don't set their prices. I think prices would go up in Florida if we had to raise wages necessary to uh, recreate the imbalance of supply and demand that exists right now because of the influx of foreign labor. But you know, there's also a piece that people aren't talking about, and that's the extraordinary expense that the state is incurring through the Medicaid program and the K-12 system from individuals that are here who shouldn't be here and are only here because the magnet is the job that improves the quality of life. And I just think, you know, we're a nation of laws. This isn't that complicated. Yes, it's inconvenient, but there's a lot of things that we have to do in society that's inconvenient to try to collectively enforce the rule of law. You have always been sort of a stickler for doing things right rather than doing things expeditiously. Has that caused problems around here? Well, to me, the end doesn't justify the means. I think we all owe each other a duty of respect and decorum and professionalism. I was raised with manners, and I, I, I don't cut corners on my colleagues. I ask that they don't cut them on me. If I have a problem with a piece of legislation, I'll look somebody in the eye and try to work it out with them. I won't go around their back and try to undermine them somewhere else. This place doesn't work that way. It's not the culture of the institution these days. And so it can be difficult at times to figure out exactly where your problem is because no one's actually saying, I don't like your bill. That's never been your problem, though, has no, it? No, sir. I mean, you have a reputation as being rather outspoken on that. Yeah, I, I, have a, I have a strong belief that people sent us up here to vote our conscience, to represent their interests. That's um, sometimes um, uh, uncomfortable because we come from different parts of the state and have different value systems. But I think as long as we're representing our constituents and speak in our minds and not trying to hide and avoid issues that make us uncomfortable or expose the fact that we perhaps aren't um, uh, operating in a manner consistent with our constituents' expectations, I just think that this is really is, shouldn't be as complicated as we make it. So other than E-Verify, what are your favorite bills this session? Well, that's a difficult question. I wasn't anticipating that one. Um, or at least favorable. We we have a we have a there's a lot of things moving right now. Um, you know, I think it's great what the governor's doing with uh, with teacher pay. I think that's really a, um, 
the time has long come and gone where we should have been doing something about that. He's been given a tremendous amount of, of credit for that. Uh, I think what he continues to do on the environment is really laudable given the history of the state of Republicans on the environment. And so, uh, and, and frankly, um, what they've done with the chief resiliency officer by making sea level rise a real issue here in our state. We got 1,350 miles of border uh, in this state and uh, we've, we've moved a bill to make that position permanent in the office of the governor and create an official sea level rise estimate so that we can set public policy around the expectations of tide levels 50 years from now. And, you know, to me, those are just, re you know, remarkable, excuse the pun, sea changes in, in Republican policies just in 12, 12 short months. So it really has made a difference, the new governor has. Oh, no question about it. He's, a, he's got a youthful brand of Republican conservatism. I think that we're reaching out to the kind of people I grew up in, grew up with rather, who shower at night and work hard during the day and feel like somehow they're disaffected by a, gov a Republican Party who spends way too much time focusing on the privileged and not enough on, on the hardworking folks in the state that are trying to you know, make ends meet. I think they've. I think we've pivoted on education. I think we've. I think we're. I think this governor is doing a lot of things that are sort of unconventional and somewhat libertarian. There's a sort of a libertarian element to this, which I think is really welcome around here, at this stage in the evolution of Republican leadership. It's been 20, 22 years now. So, how did you get through what I tend to refer to as the dark days of Governor Scott? Well, you know, um, every governor has his or her management style, and. Uh, you know, Governor Scott uh, really managed risk really well. I mean, he he didn't, uh, you know, nothing got past him. They ran that, they ran the government very aggressively from the plaza level out into the agencies. And, you know, um, I had, um, you know, I think the biggest challenges I had with Governor Scott was when Senate President Gardner tried to, uh, to expand Medicaid here in our state. And, uh, you know, Senate got crossways with the governor. And, you know, to me, you know, you're up here to fight for what you believe in. And I've never, I don't think I've ever in my life started a fight. I don't think I've ever thrown the first punch. And, and to the extent that I do or say something, get up on the wrong side of the bed and say something I shouldn't say, I'm the first guy to apologize. But I also wasn't raised to run from one. And if people are going to come down here and say the Senate's are bad people or we're not, we're not doing thoughtful public policy, well, then they deserve to have as thick a skin as I'm supposed to have. So... You know, we, we uh, give it as well as we take it. And, you know, I don't take any of this stuff too seriously. I'm up here for a short period of time, trying to do the best I can with uh, the experience that I have working issues through the process. I'm just one of, 30, of, of 39 other members, 40 members of the Senate. They have all got opinions. And um, I, don't, I try not to take any of this too personally because um, um, there's always next year and government isn't supposed to be able to shift too quickly. It's really important that there's stability in our democracy. And so sometimes the status quo isn't a bad thing. Now, as you mentioned before, you've got like, what, 22 years? You know, off, off, off and on. Off yeah. and, on. Mm -hmm. and you did walk away from it for a while and then came back and you mm -hmm. also were Senate president for two years. I was. How have things changed during those years? Well, I think things are more leadership driven today. It's my personal opinion. Um, I'm not sure that things have changed any more than I've changed. Um, I don't really need to be micromanaged or shadowed or assisted. I know how the process works. I know how to work a bill through the process and position it so that my leadership can transact business at the tail end of the session. Um, and so I tend to, 
not like some of the micromanagement. I don't like feeling like a puppet and uh, and and uh, to a puppeteer. I like to feel like the work in the process is meaningful in committee meetings in week one through seven. And uh, and sometimes I feel like what we're doing in those committees is not doesn't have as much meaning. The chairmen don't have as much authority and prerogative as that as they once did for the subject matter in their committees. But a lot of that just is because I've matured to a point, you know, I came here when I was 33, I'm now 58, and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've matured a lot and I know a lot now, and I think I'm a little less uh, tolerant, you know, at some point we all turn into our parents. Grumpy man, and, yes. uh And I have a lot less patience for some of the nonsense that I see. I also think that more today the end justifies the means. I really do. I think that the culture of the, of, of the institutions of the House and Senate today there's, le there's less um, um, professionalism in the in the process. Uh, when I came here in the you know mid '90s, late '90s, the, 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 some of the members of this institution uh, were iconic in their uh, the things they'd accomplished, and they treated me as if I was a 20-year veteran. They respected me for my my small role in the process. Uh, they could have rolled me in a heartbeat, but they didn't because. What goes around comes around uh, in this institution, and I don't think it's, it doesn't really work so much that way. It's uh, it's um, uh, too many too many people trying to see what they can get away with here instead of just trying to do the right thing and respect their colleagues. Do you feel like there are any icons left, like the ones that you knew in the younger days? Hard to say. You know, you we, we, you kind of have to look back twenty years from now and go, "Wow, that was a great guy or a great gal." They were really really impactful. Um, I think a lot of reason we look up to some of the people that the Tony Jennings of the world and what have you, who was probably my favorite uh, senator that I ever served with. Uh, people like John McKay, who was steely and tough and guys like Jim Scott, you know, there were others, Pat Thomas, uh, um, even W.D. Childers, who was cagey as they come, you know, <laughs> the Batty Rooster. He was Wasn't he the greatest. He was cagey as they come. And and uh, but they were all there. George Kirkpatrick, who passed away, you know, um, years ago, he was he was a first-class individual. And uh, so there are a lot of these guys were amazing people to learn from. And I suppose I'll look back, you know, years from now and think that some of my colleagues were, I mean, I was people, you know, Senator Brandis, I think is really thoughtful uh, and, and really hardworking. We have uh, Senate President, I think, very responsible and, and very uh, experienced and savvy in what he does. There, there are members here that, um, you know, I think Senator, I think uh, Speaker Corcoran was a, was a was a tremendous master of the process. He was certainly a game changer. Yes, sir. He was a master of the process. There, there are a lot of people that come and go that you know selectively, um, you know, I would say uh, could go down in history as is really impactful in the process. But there's probably fewer because term limits limit the the lifespan of members today and their ability to have a long term impact and their ability to have develop a depth of subject matter in the process. They're mile wide and inch deep up here today. Term limits, good or bad in the long run? Term limits, um, sort of an incomplete thought, I think. Uh, I think there's a lot that was good about term limits. It's great for things to have a beginning and, the e and an ending. Everything in life does. And, then, and to know you might be up here for a protracted period of time takes the sense of urgency out of things. But it's also create, created a... a um, a rat race for leadership. Um, yeah, over in the House, they're running for speaker before they're even elected to their first term. It's empowered the lobbying corps because leadership races are all about how many thousand dollar checks you can put, you can 
pull together to go buy love from your colleagues. My mom used to tell my little sisters, you know, when you marry for money, you earn every penny of it. And I'd just as soon see our leaders be picked on the basis of their character, their integrity, and their uh, mastery of the process than how much money they can raise. But, you know, it's expensive to run races in 2020. Uh, it's a politics expensive business and the campaigns aren't getting any cheaper. So, you know, um, I recognized a long time ago, Rick, that I'm probably not going to change Tallahassee. All I can hope for is it doesn't change me. And I just hope that uh, I'm the same guy that walks out of this building whenever that is, as, as I was when I walked in here in 1996. One of the things I usually ask lawmakers when I do these interviews is, what's your secret talent? Your, your, hidden, your, your hidden superpower, the thing that happens in the real life away from here that maybe people don't know about, but should know about. What makes you special that way? And, and something that I employ up here or something that... that in real life back home? I think that uh, because of the way I was raised, my father was a chief master sergeant in the United States Air Force. It was a, raised by a very plain spoken man who was very fair, but you always knew where you stood with him. And I grew up with hardworking people in the construction industry. He left the Air Force to get in the construction industry. Um, I went to public schools, grew up with all kinds of average people from all walks of life. And I think all of that has, has um, given me a, a sense of uh, appreciation for the common man and a perspective and a relationship with the common man and affinity for them that I think a lot of legislators don't have. And um, because I was raised the way I was raised, I have... Um, uh, my reputation uh, is what's most important to me, and I was raised that it's more important to be liked, respected than liked. And so I think kind of the power in me, I, I feel like, is that I'm always focused on uh, doing what I think is right, irrespective of what the politics of the day might be driving you to do. Sometimes the most powerful things you do in public life are the things you do against, against the tide um, when you... Uh, you know, rain on the parade or throw a wet blanket on something that um, seems to be the people are doing the wave over. So, uh, you know, to me, it's just kind of sticking to my principles and, and not being affected by, um, you know, all the influences that exist around you in this process that can steer you away from your core values. Our guest today on Sunrise, State Senator Tom Lee. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Always a pleasure. Your calendar of events today begins with the Florida Board of Dentistry meeting at 7.30 in the morning for some reason in Gainesville. The Florida Board of Physical Therapy meets at 8 in Tampa. The Revenue Estimating Conference holds an impact conference in the Capitol at 9. The Florida Blockchain Task Force meets at 9 in the Capitol. The Florida Board of Podiatric Medicine meets at 9 in Orlando. The House Gaming Control Subcommittee meets at 9 in the Capitol. And Representatives Diane Hart and Susan Valdez are holding a press conference at 1030 in the Capitol to bring attention to HB 189 and what they say is the need for criminal justice reform. And finally on today's program are continuing adventures of Florida Man with an all-female cast today. 
A Florida woman is accused of attacking her boyfriend and breaking windows in their home because he refused to have sex. Police in Fort Pierce say 23-year-old Rebecca Duarte returned home after a night of boozing in a bowling alley and told her beau she wanted to get physical. When he refused, police say she punched out several of the jealousy windows in their house and then began striking him. Duarte's 51-year-old boyfriend had lacerations on his face and shoulder, but police say he refused to press charges or let them take pictures of his injuries. She was arrested, however, on a charge of domestic battery. And a Florida woman is accused of running over her boyfriend with a golf cart after a day of bar hopping. Lee County deputies arrested 37-year-old Melanie Giza-Milkowski for aggravated battery after the couple got into a fight at the Ragged Ass Saloon on Pine Island. The victim told deputies this is not their first domestic problem and he plans on pressing charges. To be completely honest with you, the main reason I read that story was because I wanted to say Ragged Ass Saloon. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.